0: Hi, thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some pretty tough topics, and this topic uh, today is a tough one, I believe, and it's on strangulation. Now, if you have heard somebody say, well, he choked me, or you know, basically what they're talking about is strangulation, um, which is a much more accurate term. And the problem is not only in the getting strangled. The problem is in the repercussions and the long-term effects of that and what we can do about it. We have an expert with us today, Gail Stack, Stack. Okay, help me out, Gail. It's Strack. I have to wear my glasses when I'm looking at my papers, I'm afraid. She's the Chief Mm -hmm. Executive Officer and Co-Founder for Alliance for Hope International, and she's going to talk to us about what strangulation means, why it's often overlooked in victims, and um, why health professionals aren't more aware of it, and ultimately what we can do about it. So thank you for joining us, Gail.
1: Well thank you, Heather, and I really appreciate you taking on this issue. It is a difficult one because it really is about taking your last breath. So non fatal strangulation is what we call it now, but everybody thinks it's still choking. And just using that word from choking to non fatal strangulation, it really says two different things. And I think that's a of thing. Oh gosh, it. choking that
0: sounds like Choking sounds like it's, you know, relatively minor. Like, oh, well, I, you know, I choked on a little piece of potato, but now I'm fine. Um, when you say non-fatal strangulation, I mean, wow. I mean, that imparts uh, more significance to it. And it should have huge significance. Um, you know, I mean, the fact that one person would do this to another is horrific. What happened? It is horrific. So well, let's, wait a minute, let's back up. Why? Why does this occur? When does it occur? How does it occur?
1: Well, in the studies, we know that it occurs mostly in domestic violence situations. We know from a study that was conducted and published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine back in 2001 that this is a gender crime and men use this type of violence to control their victims. I think at the heart of it, you've got power and control, and this is the ultimate way to control someone, and you send a very strong and deadly message to a victim that I can control your last breath. So this is dangerous. You can strangle someone to the point of unconsciousness in a matter of seconds. You can strangle someone to death and not leave a single external mark in five minutes or less.
0: You're kidding. I would think that if somebody put their hands around you or a, a garage around you, I mean, wouldn't that leave a mark if they did it, it tightened them enough so that it would strangle you and really cut off your air?
1: Well, that's what everybody thought, including me, because I thought if somebody applied pressure to somebody's neck that you would see visible injuries. But it is a different type of violence because you can punch someone and with that force you can leave a bruise but when it comes to strangulation you're talking about compression it's continuous pressure placed whether your hands or your arms or an object on a victim's neck so we generally like to find out from a victim did anyone apply any pressure to your neck by any means because what we're finding even the word choking doesn't mean the same thing to everyone so even when i ask someone do you think he choked you, the victim may say no because she doesn't see that as choking. So language is really important here. And the word choking, I agree with you, minimizes the type of violence that is going on. You can punch somebody in the arm and create a bruise. That's not going to kill someone. But when you put your hands around somebody's neck and if you don't let go, you can kill someone. That is the thing that's going to happen.
0: And just so we're clear, when somebody does this, they're doing it on purpose. They're doing it to cause damage. This is not something that people play with, right?
1: Well, that's a very interesting point. Some people do play what's called the choking game, and we track – Um, all media stories related to strangulation or choking. And I would say every month or every other month, you do have a child who plays the choking game and they accidentally kill themselves because they think it's just a game and they think they're going to get a high as a result of that lack of oxygen to the brain. But every second counts. Depending on the type of method that's being used, you can actually strangle someone in under two minutes. Strangle them to death in under two minutes.
0: Well, and I think that about the uh, the only thing that I've heard about purposeful strangulation um, is with uh, I guess it's called autoerotic asphyxiation. It's a sexual thing for some people um, that that they do that, and it's very dangerous, I'm sure. But when one person does it to another, there I mean there can't possibly any other motive than to cause harm and intimidation, could there?
1: Well, there, I think there is a very small population that may be involved in alternate sex practices. I didn't think we'd be talking about sex on the radio, but there is a population that does that for pleasure. Um, it is not recognized in the law as a, a sexual act. You, Because legally you cannot consent to something that can potentially kill you. So while sure. you can consent... To sex you cannot consent to let's say strangulation because strangulation could kill you and even if somebody was playing like Russian roulette uh, you will still be held accountable for anything that goes wrong so if you shoot someone and they kill themselves you're going uh, and they die you're going to be held responsible so if you apply pressure to somebody's neck and they pass out and ultimately die or have serious injuries as a result of that you will be prosecuted for a crime
0: Wow. In the case of domestic violence, though, we're, I would assume that we're not usually talking about anything that's consensual, even if it's a dangerous consensual. Um, we're talking about fear, intimidation, because that's what domestic violence is all about. Um, how often is this used? We think of domestic violence, I think, when I say we, uh, people who are not necessarily involved and see it every day. We we tend to think of, of domestic violence as uh, pushing, shoving, hitting. Do we tend to think of strangulation as part of domestic violence? And why not? Uh, and uh, why should uh, definitely,
1: we? Definitely, yeah. Strangulation is part of that continuum. I think in the past people perceived choking and the low-level continuum, that pushing, that shoving, and choking. But strangulation is right there next to stabbing and shooting. With strangulation, you can have the same impact. You can kill someone if you stab them, you can kill somebody if you shoot them, and you can kill someone if you strangle them. So strangulation is on the higher end of the continuum. In the research, Generally, you will see that in a a domestic violence situation, Um, the research in 2001 showed on average it was happening after like a three-year relationship. So that continual violence is now increasing in severity and frequency. We also see higher numbers of strangulation in high-risk cases. So, victims who call the police are generally the ones that you might see more strangulation because victims have already tried to mitigate and try to control it and um, manage the domestic violence, and they are doing all kinds of things to try to prevent it from happening again, but eventually they reach the point that they have to call the police for help because they can't control the situation. It's beyond their control and they're in fear for their safety. We see them too where victims are getting restraining orders and they need the court's help to protect them. We're seeing them when victims go to a shelter or when they go to a family justice center for help. Generally, they're going to be a high-risk victim. And in those communities where where victims go to get help to try to stop the violence, you can see strangulation 60 to 70% of the time. But I think it can get very lost in the grand number of just the general population. And the reason I think it gets lost and one of the main reasons it gets minimized is because our study in 2001 showed that at least half of the victims had no visible injury whatsoever. And there was only a few of them that had minor injuries. So I, it's, it's that, that, almost you know, a I'm you, but that,
0: that is so hard for me to understand how somebody could actually strangle you and it doesn't even leave a mark. I mean, it
1: just, know. Oh, oh, my gosh. You would think that something yeah, that, that would serious would probably... You're right, but it was one of those things that was one of my biggest aha moments because I too thought if you were strangled, you would see visible injuries. And our study of 300 cases where victims reported to the police that they had been choked or pressure was applied to their neck, 50% of them had no visible injuries. And when they do have injuries, it's very subtle. You have to look for it. And the only way you can know how to look for it is you have to receive training. You have to really receive very specific training on the signs and symptoms of strangulation. When we do our training, we cover the medical aspects because it could be tiny little red spots that we now know called petechia. That petechia is evidence of a life-threatening injury because it's essentially it's caused by venous pressure when blood is not coming down from the brain because good blood goes up to the brain and bad blood comes down. And there's kind of like a nice plumbing kind of circular thing happening there. And if you interrupt good blood going to the brain or interrupt the brain, the blood draining from the brain, bad things will happen. You can pass out within seconds. And we believe that the minute that somebody passes out, that loss of consciousness because of the lack of oxygen, you're causing a traumatic brain injury. And if you continue to hold on to the victim's neck, you will eventually cause, the essentially the brain starts to shut down and important organs of the body start to shut down and then victims will urinate and victims will defecate and then eventually, because of the lack of oxygen to the brain, they will die. And somewhere in between is what, what we call a point of no return, that victims have lost So much oxygen to the brain and damage has been caused to the brain that they just can't recover. How long does that take? It varies from person to person, um, but generally that point of no return is going to be somewhere between that two to five minute mark. If you cut off the blood flow to the brain, death is going to co- occur much quicker. You can also suffocate somebody to death by blocking off or airflow. It's much like drowning. So when you do not, if you're not able to breathe, that will take generally that four minute mark. Where if you block off blood flow to the brain, that generally is going to a, uh, cause more damage quicker. It's a difference between hypoxia. And anoxia, which ultimately causes the asphyxia condition.
0: Wow, lots of big words, but um, it, it's—I I think we, you know, anybody who's, you know, listened to CSI probably has heard all those words before, but not necessarily in this context. So, I'm kind of gobsmacked. It's—it's um, it's difficult, I think, for for people to hear. That this kind of behavior goes on, that one person can go to another person, especially in a domestic violence situation where, you know, clearly the victim is typically a woman. Um, and don't give me the calls about how men can be abused too. I know that, I know that, I know that. But a ma- majority of them are women. So let's talk women. Um, I think it's hard for some of us to understand how, you know, in this day and age we can have that situation going on where it's so routine, the typical number that we use when we're talking about the occurrence of domestic violence is about one in three, sometimes one in four, but usually around one in three women. Of the, those one in three women who experience domestic violence, about how many of them have experienced strangulation of, uh, in one way, shape, or another?
1: Um, th- that's a good question and a hard question to answer when you look at the, the grand population. But what I can say that is that we're seeing strangulation in higher numbers, 60 to 70%, in cases where victims are determined to be at high risk. And by high risk, what does that we determine that. What does that mean? Uh, with, with high risk, we uh, fortunately now have these tools that are available for professionals. One tool, for example, is called the Danger Assessment Tool, which was developed by Dr. Jackie Campbell. That tool has now taken various kind of forms. There's a tool that can ask five questions, and there's a tool that asks 20 questions. Whichever form you use, because they've all been validated in the research to be very um, accurate, is that when a victim is determined to be at high risk, That's what we're seeing more victims who are strangled. And, for example, strangulation is one of those red flags that is a predictor that someone is at high risk and not only to be reabused or violence will occur again, but ultimately to be killed. We have one study that came out in 2008 that said if you are strangled, one time, just one time, you are 750% more likely to be killed by that individual, your abuser. Because when somebody and, puts their hands, just like you said, around someone's neck, that is somebody who is willing to risk somebody's life because you are cutting off blood flow uh, to the brain and the neck is a very very vulnerable part of the body, and the brain and breathing and blood is very central to life.
0: We have, I would assume, a fairly high percentage of women who have experienced domestic violence. We already know that, you know, about one in three women experience domestic violence. So we already know that there's a high number of women who experience this, we are. It sounds to me like what you're saying is we're not sure how many of those women experience strangulation per se, but can you estimate how many of those women are in high-risk lethality situations?
1: Well, um, good questions, hard questions to answer because all of this research is about apples and oranges. But uh, I will say this. Um, out of, let's say, all of the domestic violence cases that get reported, about 25% of those will involve a strangulation case. So that would be like one out of four. And so and I that's think. And that's just you, a reported.
0: We all know it goes on and it's not necessarily reported.
1: Exactly. So then if you to factor that in, you're probably looking at one in three. And this is also something hard to to, for victims to even talk about. And the reason why this is hard for victims to talk about is they may not even remember they were strangled. Because once you start to apply pressure to somebody's neck and you cut off the blood flow, there's a part of the brain that's called the amygdala and and there's another part called the hippocampus. The amygdala is kind of like the fear center, and then when the fear center kind of kicks off, it really scrambles everybody's, like, memory, jumbles it up. When the hippocampus is impacted because of a lack of oxygen or blood flow and it's not working, that means it's not recording. So a lot of our victims who are strangled may even say they don't even remember being strangled. But they usually say, I don't remember. I remember an argument happening. I remember him going for my neck. And the next thing you know, I'm on the ground or I'm in the bedroom. I'm in a different location. Or I urinated on myself or I defecated. Or now I've got a, you know, raspy voice. Or now I'm having difficulty swallowing and I'm still having discomfort about breathing. Or all of a sudden I've got these tiny red spots all over my face. And so things are happening to them that they can't explain and, and also a lack of oxygen to the brink may make you up to be more hostile and more combative so if the police get called and you look hostile and combative it would be easy for the offender to basically say you know she's the one that started it all and look at me i've got all these visible injuries and he may have visible injuries because she's trying to fight him off to stay alive okay. And what we know now, too, is that we've got 45 states that have passed felony strangulation laws. We have the federal laws now under the Violence Against Women Act of 2013 that have passed the felony strangulation and suffocation law. Because we know that the medical science shows that victims will be strangled and have no visible injuries, the federal law doesn't require visible injury. And a lot of the case law now recognizes that a loss of consciousness is great bodily injury. In fact, California just passed a new statute because we are concerned not only with immediate consequences that somebody can die as a result of strangulation, but we're concerned with the long-term consequences because now people are reporting having early dementia they're having strokes at an early age you can have delayed consequences like a traumatic brain injury and have trouble concentrating we're working with a lot of victims who contact us because they can't keep their jobs and now they're trying to go on disability and no one believes them because they had no visible injuries so our california law trying to recognize some of the long-term consequences Will make it effective January 1 where law enforcement officers have a duty to advise victims that they come in contact with who've been strangled or suffocated to warn them about how serious strangulation is, that they are potentially at risk of being killed and having long-term consequences, and strongly recommending to victims to seek immediate medical attention to make sure that they are going to be okay. And we also recommend that they work with an advocate so they can do the risk assessment, they can do the safety planning, and determine what can we do to keep victims safe. So I'm very excited. Okay, but then I'm going to interrupt in you here
0: because you're talking about uh, the California law that the police have to advise a woman, and you're talking about the services that are available to a woman, but we had a conversation a while ago about the fact that oftentimes medical professionals and even victim advocates miss even asking about strangulation, what's that all about? That's absolutely
1: true. Well, that's our long journey. Um, Once you figure out that we missed it, then comes the journey of trying to pass laws to try to bring awareness to the issue to educate everyone. As our laws are passing, there is no mandatory requirement for people to receive training. So it's literally we're doing the best that we can to get all the professionals aware of this issue to receive training. We've been blessed enough to be able to work with various um, coalitions, various victim advocacy groups on our website, we have a, a webinar or dedicated to victim advocates to help them understand about the medical science and symptoms, to ask the right questions, to assess for strangulation, and make referrals to the hospital. And then, Heather, you pointed out a very good point is that that also and equally applies to the medical community because it's been missed there as well. So what I've understood is the best way to document a strangulation case and to see if anybody has any internal injuries is an autopsy because you have to go inside. It's mostly internal injuries that you will have. But uh, who's going to do that? So you can't just look at a victim and determine that she's fine. We brought together an amazing group of doctors to try to address this issue, and now we have imaging recommendations for hospitals.
0: Okay, so some of the, the imaging tests that we can do for other health issues, we can do that, and help identify uh, strangulation. So, um, But I want to back up a little bit because, you know, what we're talking about is pretty, you know, we're kind of talking about it a couple of steps removed. I'd like to get it a little bit closer to home. If I am not sure I was strangled, I was involved in an altercation, the police come, I'm not sure whether I've been strangled or not. If you're really lucky, I suppose the police will be aware, and they'll ask you, or they'll look. If they don't see any handprints or bruising around your throat, what's going to happen? Will they probably just move on and assume that there was no strangulation? Is, what's, walk me through. If I'm a victim, I believe I might have been strangled, but I'm not positive, and a typical police officer comes to my door. What What would occur? Uh- how, how would the police ask or would they even bother asking?
1: Okay, very good question. I would say it's going to depend. It will depend on the community that where you live. So in other words, Some police agencies are training their police officers on the identification of non-fatal strangulation cases. They're doing it at the police academy. They're doing an advanced officer training. They're encouraging them to uh, receive more training. Some police or sheriff agencies are changing their protocol because in the past it never included strangulation. I'm proud to say that San Diego is one of the very few cities that has a county-wide protocol on non-fatal strangulation, but that's not true for everyone. So if you called 911, it would depend. Did that officer receive training? If the officer received training, I would venture to say they would know the signs and symptoms to ask you more questions. And and if they've received training, that usually is an indication that they've probably changed their forms and they've been trained to ask very specific questions that we never asked before. If you call a jurisdiction such as, and such as no what? training, yeah. Um, Such as what? The, um, what kind of questions? The, tr- the questions that they're being asked is they're trying to determine if any pressure had been applied to somebody's neck. Was it continuous pressure? How painful was it? Like on a scale from one to ten. We're trying to figure out: Did you have any kind of symptoms? Did you experience like visual changes, hearing changes? Did you? Do you think you may have? Um, passed out? Because if you ask a victim, did you pass out? They may not be able to answer that question. And if you force them into a yes or no, they may say no out of abundance of caution. But Symptoms that we're looking for is do they feel lightheaded at any particular point? Do they have any difficulty breathing? Are they experiencing any voice changes now? Does the voice sound different, like is it raspy? And then we're asking them to pay attention. Is the victim all of a sudden coughing a lot? Uh, Did she describe any kind of vision changes where she saw stars or everything just kind of got black and dark? You know, as you're watching her and she's listening to you, is she having any difficulty understanding what you're saying? Is she having any difficulty in responding in a timely fashion? Are you seeing her now have, like, difficulty swallowing? Did she become nauseous? Does any vomit anywhere? And then the hard part is going to ask victims if they urinated or defecated. And most victims are going to hide that information. They won't tell you. They may even change your clothes. They may even throw their clothes away. So you have to make it normal. You know, some victims, sometimes they pass out. And as a result of that, they urinate or defecate. Did that happen to you? And that, Or is are these the clothes that you were wearing at the time? So they're being trained to look for things. The other one that I mentioned before is called petechia. They're tiny little red spots that are caused from pressure, that Venus, the blood is not coming down from the brain so there's this pressure buildup and it causes more I, blood to be in the brain than is necessary I've, I've and then experienced, essentially there's bleeding inside.
0: Yeah,
1: I've experience experienced that.
0: No? I, I had an asthma attack and I started coughing really, really badly and I couldn't catch my breath and um, and I took a hit of medicine a couple minutes later and it was fine, but I noticed that, that later that afternoon I had all these red dots around my eyes
1: That's it. That's petechia. And petechia can be caused by other things other than strangulation. There are a lot of other ways to get it, but they're looking for that. And if there are visible injuries, they're going to be looking for redness. They're going to look for some scratch marks. They're going to look for some bruising maybe behind the ear. Um, They're being trained to look, uh, have the victim put her eyelids, kind of like pull them up and pull them down because those tiny little spots can be in the whites of the eyes. Sometimes that is so Um, there's so much petechiae that it's like the entire white of the eye or whites of the eye, it looks like it's just bleeding. And then sometimes there can be some injury inside the mouth and or a swollen tongue or even petechiae inside the mouth. So anywhere from the point of pressure up is generally where you'll find petechiae. And if there's positional asphyxia, meaning they try to sit on the victim, preventing her from like escaping or running or leaving, and you apply pressure, death can occur much quicker and you might see signs of petechiae in other parts of the body. So this is a type of injury where you really need to do a forensic exam, much like our sexual assault exams, where you're um, examining a patient from head to toe and asking them very specific questions and doing a very thorough documentation, or you're gonna miss it. And if you go, going back to your original question, into a community that hasn't been trained the likelihood of them even writing it down is probably very minimal and even if it gets prosecuted it will probably be prosecuted as a misdemeanor as opposed to a felony as which is the right charge because this is an aggravated assault it can be an attempted at homicide or in some cases if death results you're going to have a homicide
0: okay one of the things that I always like to do is to let people know how they can help someone um, and that's a really tough thing to do if you have a, a friend or a family member who is experiencing something like this. But what I'm hearing you say is one of the ways that you can help, if you're a friend or or uh, a family member of a woman who has experienced domestic violence, is to ask her some of these questions and uh, maybe accompany her to the hospital if she needs to go to the hospital and ask the doctors if they've checked for. Is that Is that an appropriate response if you're a friend or family member?
1: I think it's a very appropriate response. Sometimes a victim may go to a friend first, or a friend just needs to educate themselves about the signs. What I have found is a lot of victims have friends and family members that they um, confide in. And they need their support. And sometimes when victims don't leave right away, those friends or relatives may get very frustrated. But I say, please do not give up on your friend or family member. Educate yourself first about the signs and symptoms of strangulation. And if you see them, Um, I would also in a gentle way let them know that you've learned more about non-fatal strangulation and you're concerned for their safety and you don't want anything bad for them, anything bad to happen to them because they love them and that you would go with them to talk to an advocate or you'll go with them to talk to a police officer or go to a family justice center or go with them to the hospital or their doctor to just make sure that they get examined and they get the essentially a nice, clean CAT scan is what we're recommending, a CTA, because the CTA is what's going to be able to assess anything that's happening internally, especially to the carotid arteries that we're very concerned about. Because if you're applying pressure right there to the neck, you know we've got your veins, you've got your carotid arteries, they're pretty much unprotected, and a lot of damage can occur to those critical arteries and veins that you will not never be able to see just looking at somebody. The only way that you can feel reassured that there's no damage is a, um, a CAT scan or an MRI.
0: Okay, so uh, worst-case scenario, the police are called out to an altercation. Um, the woman isn't sure whether or not she's been strangled. Maybe, and I guess if we're going to start with the worst case, we should start with one of the effects is that she is hostile or combative, that her abuser then, as is very typical, says, see, I'm the one who was abused, um, and the police end up taking her um, to, out of the home or to jail. Is it likely that she's going to receive any treatment at all for having been strangled?
1: Well, it's interesting. If you get arrested and you go to jail, they do a screening there. They screen everybody that goes to jail to make sure that there are no injuries. If they determine that somebody has been strangled, most jail protocol require them to be assessed to make sure that nothing bad is going to happen. Like even when police use the carotid restraint, a medical assessment and clearance is required. So in the case that you just described, we had in the city attorney's office when I was a former prosecutor, the police respond to a call of 911. They find the victim very upset, agitated, and combative. He was the one that had scratch marks all to his face, and they thought that she was the aggressor. They arrest her. They take her to jail. She's now having these symptoms, difficulty breathing. She has these red pateka spots. She's got some swelling. She's got bruising behind the ear that showed up after all of this. And because she was having these complaints, they took her to the hospital side of the jail and documented all of this, and then ultimately, we were able to release her and charge him as the aggressor. So the good news is is that as part of this training and part of our laws is to identify or learn how to identify who is the dominant or predominant aggressor. And with strangulation cases, for the scenarios we just talked about, it is easy to identify the wrong person because our strangled victim may have no visible injuries and the assailant may have bite marks and scratches when somebody is trying to defend themselves and protect themselves and keep them from breathing. I mean, just imagine if you could not breathe, that panic, Uh, We see it all the time. People start to panic the minute that you feel you can't breathe, and you're going to do whatever you possibly can to stay alive. And it's instinctive. You can't really control that. You're just trying to stay alive if you have the chance, even seconds before somebody causes you to pass out.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, anybody who watches any, you know, like I said, the CSI or whatever, I mean, you, we see these things depicted, and I, although not, not everything you see um, is, is accurate, it, it, it seems logical. I mean, any of us who maybe have choked on a piece of food or, my, in my case, the asthma attack where you just couldn't catch your breath, that is frightening. It is absolutely frightening. Um, I think it's more frightening than experiencing pain or anything else when you just can't breathe. So I just can't imagine how tough it must be for women who do experience this. I wanted to back up just a tiny little bit because we have been talking about, uh, or we did talk briefly about women who uh, uh, stay in these situations, and I just want to throw out this, for our listeners who are not familiar with domestic violence situations, There are there are a myriad of reasons why women Stay in in a situation uh, longer than their friends and family think they should. Uh, lots and lots of reasons. And one of the things that I always say is, uh, studies show that it takes approximately seven attempts for smokers to give up cigarettes. How long? How many attempts do you think it must take to give up your hopes, your dreams, your loved one, your home? You know, it, it, it's just a hugely complex thing. So I just wanted to throw that out so that people who are listening to this and are probably thinking, oh, my gosh, if if she's strangled, why the heck isn't she out of there? There's something wrong with her. Um, No, it's it's a lot more complicated than that. So I want to make sure we don't minimize those reasons while we're talking about this. I, I hope you don't mind that I threw that in, Gail.
1: No, I think it's very important, so I'm glad you covered that. And I think for a victim who's been strangled, She's even going to be in more fear. She's going to be terrified, terrified to the point where she may even be paralyzed to take some of those necessary steps. And I think the other thing that people sometimes forget about or don't know about is how many steps victims of domestic violence do take to try to get out of that situation or try to fix the situation because it's very complicated. This is usually a relationship where you love someone, you're committed to them, you might have children, you're financially connected, but you can also fear and love someone at the same time.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's a very complicated issue and um, the strangulation thing obviously, you know, is hugely serious and needs to be taken seriously um, by everyone involved. But In all fairness, I mean, I think when the general population talks about domestic violence, we think of, as I said before, pushing, shoving, hitting, slapping. Um, I don't think we talk a whole lot about strangulation. Um, We talk about broken bones and bruises, but strangulation may not even leave a bruise. Um, But what it does leave is this lingering, lingering effect. And some of the research that you were talking about that's revealing more and more of these long-term effects, um, that's, that's kind of startling. You had mentioned the early dementia and possibly of stroke. What are some of the other long-term effects of strangulation uh, that we're discovering? And does it have to be repeated strangulation or once can cause some of these things? What, tell me more a little bit about the research for long-term uh, strangulation victims.
1: Well, I think it's just, that part is just coming to the forefront and more people are talking about it, but we're not doing enough to assess it. So I, what we're going to see is many of our victims who've been victims of domestic violence and strangulation are also suffering traumatic brain injury, which can conclude essentially your brain is shrinking. It's just like those football players where they have CTE and they die as a result of it, or they commit suicide because they feel like they're going crazy. It's, you know, that, that brain is being assaulted over and over and over again, whether it's through a concussion, whether it is through trauma, whether it is through um, a lack of oxygen to the brain, all of those things essentially takes a hit to the brain and the brain can't take that many hits without having damage and what we're seeing is with like the football players is that the brain shrinks and it causes people to have early death and if it's not as a result of the brain, you have the other issue which we talked about which was the carotid um, dissection which can cause those early strokes. And so all of these health consequences are finally coming to the attention of our community to say we need to assess victims of domestic violence for traumatic brain injury. And then if you can assess it early, then you can start treating it. But that's not happening right now. I mean, the good news is, like with the football players, you're now seeing Uh, they're they're taking more uh, safety precautions they're doing MRIs of of young football players before they start the season and they're doing MRIs in between the season and MRIs at the end of the season now they're monitoring to make sure that they're not having any serious brain damage we're not doing that kind of monitoring for victims of domestic violence right now we're fighting like you know hand-in-hand to to try to convince hospitals to just even follow the protocol to um, use a CAT scan or an MRI to just evaluate for internal injuries, and it's not routine. It's one hospital at the time at a time when we have a chance to talk to them, share the research, share our concerns, and when we have that opportunity, hospitals are going, yeah, we get it, okay, we missed it, we're not going to miss it again, we're going to adopt that. So on our website, you will see the hospitals who have adopted it. You will see a lot of information where if you're a professional working in the field, we've got materials for you, or we're also really trying to uh, advocate for brochures to victims about the facts of strangulation. So that's one of our top priorities, because we figure if nothing else, we need to educate victims about how serious this is and their possibility of long-term consequences so they can stay alive and be there for their kids and live uh, a complete life, as opposed to having their brain being impacted or having to go on disability or unemployment or, or whatever their circumstance might be. Or to stay in an abusive situation longer because they can't work.
0: Yeah, one and that can be the studies that I've seen have shown that once you have spent a number of years in an abusive marriage, it's extremely difficult to get out. Um, I, I know one personal case where the woman's children had grown. Um, she was horribly abused both, you know, emotionally, psychologically, financially, physically. Uh, her, she stayed with him until all four of her children were grown, married, out of the house, had children of their own, and then she decided she couldn't do it any longer. It was, she actually said that they were sitting there reading the newspaper and watching TV, and her husband saw an ad for a cemetery plot. And he said, that's what we need to do next, is to buy these cemetery plots. And she said she looked at him, and she thought, I have spent an entire miserable life with you, you horrible person. I am not going to spend eternity with you. And she got up, got her purse, got in her car, and left. And she lived in her car. She got flack from her children, even though her children knew that he was abusive. Uh, the, The older women who try to leave, it's tough. It's very tough. Um, So I think that um, the longer a person stays with this, the more difficult it is to get out. And as you're describing these physical symptoms, it must be almost impossible. So it would seem to me that early education, early intervention would be really helpful in these cases of strangulation. Um, And, What can we do about it? My daughter called me the other day. She lives in in, uh, another city in another state, and she said that when she went to her doctor, she was surprised because she went to the bathroom and there were no brochures on domestic violence. And I said, well, you need to ask your doctor to put those brochures in the bathroom. I'm wondering if we need brochures on strangulation as well as just general domestic violence information. Are there such materials out there? If if somebody wants materials on strangulation, where would they go?
1: Well, actually, they can come right to us, and we have a, a team of experts, and we have one very gifted individual, Eusenia Sevis on our staff, that she will customize a brochure for you for free. So we are trying oh to God. get this out, and you're right, it's up to each and every one of us. I do the same thing, and my daughter does the same thing. We go to the hospital, we go see our doctor, and I'm checking. I'm checking the office to make sure that they've got brochures. And then the next time I go, well, you ran out of brochures, here's some more brochures, doctor. And I do that not only with my doctor but with my dentist because victims of domestic violence are also going to their dentist to try to fix maybe a broken tooth or something else. So all of us are in a place. And then, of course, you know, some of the laws require of uh, hospitals and doctors and nurses to ask, are you safe at home? But if you ask that question and then a victim says yes, you got to be ready to say we've got some information for you. But I am stunned when I have gone to my doctor's office and they got all these brochures about all these kinds of diseases, sexually transmitted disease, and I'm going, where is your domestic violence brochure? And it may not be there. And even yeah. when you, know, you do have them, you got to go back and you got to say, did you run out? Do you need some more? What can I do to help? I think the more our community takes this on as a community issue, the better we will be because it is impacting everybody. It's impacting the kids. It spills over in the schools. It spills over just about every place that you see it. You see it in gang violence. And if you You want to be totally crass about
0: it and you want to look at the bottom line, it costs us all money. If that's a motivator for you to get involved, then think about that. It costs us all money. We're all paying for this health care. We're all paying for these long-term effects of people who can't work and be productive in life. We're all paying for the damage done to children who witness violence. We're all paying for it. So in that respect, we all need to take some responsibility for it. Boy, give me a soapbox. Yes. that was a good one,
1: huh? I know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it'd be nice to see the same kind of awareness right now that we have for sexual assault for domestic violence. I would love to see You know, one M2 of the things that I noticed is that violence. that.
0: What I, what I noticed is with domestic violence, it seems like about five, six years ago, everybody was kind of on that bandwagon, and everybody wanted to you know be involved and then you know we 're we're, we're kind of fickle with our causes and and now uh, it seems to me a lot of the energy in the in the general population the energy is moving on to other, other areas. And I just want to go, no, no, it hasn't, you know, this isn't a fad. Domestic violence is not a fad. It's not a passing fancy. It's not, it's an issue that has been with us for eons and it will, be with us you know until we all manage to figure out how to get rid of it so um but i i do think that you know we tend to move f- from one thing to another um fairly rapidly and and it saddens me but maybe that's just my jaded view of it do you, do you know what i'm saying
1: No, I I hear you, and that's why I think it takes organizations who are committed to a certain issue to be that voice to keep it on the forefront while new issues come and new issues go. But there is always, it does seem, and I agree with you, this new shiny thing that people end up focusing on, and it's probably the way our culture is now with social media and Twitter and short, quick ways to communicate.
0: Exactly, and and domestic violence is not short, quick, or easy to explain in any way, shape, or form. We keep talking uh, uh, around the issues about your organization, but can you tell us about your organization and how people would access it? I want to know more about the customized brochure because I want to access that myself. Oh, boy. I hope
1: you do. Well, we are called Alliance for Hope International, and we run five major programs. One is to help communities start family justice centers, and we help communities around the world. A family justice center is essentially one place where all the professionals who deal with domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse, elder abuse, or human trafficking can work in one place, which allows survivors of all those crimes to go to one place and reduce the times and the places that they have to go to tell their story. We also have a program called the Strangulation Training Institute where we try to bring education and awareness to prevent strangulation from occurring, especially at that high felony and deadly level. And our third program is to work with children who are exposed to domestic violence. The program is called Camp Hope. Our fourth program is providing civil legal assistance to victims of domestic violence and sexual assault, and that program is called the Justice Legal Network. And our fifth, but probably most important program is called Voices, and that's a group of survivors from all of our family justice owners who are in a good place and they're willing to tell their stories. But if you are able to go to our website at strangulationtraininginstitute.com, you'll be able to find more information. You can download our brochure. You can send in a request to have your brochure customized with your logo and your contact information so we're so happy each and every time we get to help somebody we will put uh, for example we've got police departments district attorney's office hospitals advocacy groups tribes you name it uh, they have been contacting us and most recently but sadly we've created some new brochures addressing the issue of children who are being strangled uh, they have oh. the same kinds of issues, the same signs and symptoms, and probably even harder for them to tell anybody that's happening.
0: Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I, in our entire conversation, it just, that never even occurred to me. But of course, children can be victims as well. And wow, that's staggering. <laughs> I don't, don't want to. So
1: we have a lot of elders who are being strangled. and you think of a vulnerable population, you have the young children who may not be even able to talk, or you have elders. And when it comes to elders, anything that they might see like an early death, they go, oh, did they die of natural causes, especially if they don't see visible injuries. So you really have to be suspicious about certain signs and symptoms in the, with the youth. And, of course, uh, with the elders, and we've already talked about victims of domestic violence, have a very difficult time telling anyone what's happening out of fear and for so many other complicated reasons.
0: Yeah. Well, and many children, especially if they're young, just don't have the vocabulary. They don't have uh, the, the words uh, to share some of these, these things that they've been experiencing. Frightening, absolutely frightening. Um, so give me your website again. It's strangulation training. Um, Institute, I wrote it down here. Institute, strangulationtraininginstitute.org. Is there a cost for these customized brochures?
1: Uh, no, there isn't, and it's .com. Oh, it's so .com. all you have to do, yes, all you have to do is there's a, a little button about how to reach us, and if you reach us, you say, I heard about the brochure and I would like to have a brief, free brochure. We will contact you from there, and generally all we really need is a high Def, uh, logo so we want to get a high quality logo and the contact information and then uh, we will customize it for you and send it back depending on our workload we can sometimes do it within 24 hours or less
0: okay and if i wanted to uh, tell my doctor's office or my daughter's doctor's office about this they can access this as well
1: absolutely
0: okay Where uh who pays for this
1: Well, right now, we are absorbing the cost through a grant. We're very grateful to the Office on the Violence Against Women. It's a grant that's been provided to our organization through the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice realizes that this is an important issue, and it's an area that has been overlooked, And so part of our work is to specifically reach out to professionals who are working with or handling these cases, like at the hospital or as police officers or victim witness or advocates or the court. And so we decided as a team that this is how we were going to help bring awareness and education not only to the victims, but to also the professionals. So when you get to our website, you'll see a lot of tools that are available for various professionals and multidisciplinary. What we're doing now is creating toolkits that really target, let's say, uh, we just finished a chapter for dispatchers. We have a, a toolkit for the medical community. We have tools and resources for law enforcement, for prosecutors, for probation officers, for advocates. We're really trying to make a targeted effort to reach out to all the professionals who may not be aware of this and give them the tools that they need so they could do a better job in assessing, educating, and holding people accountable for the crimes that they commit. Because in the past, these cases never went to trial, or if they did, they would be handled as misdemeanors and not felonies.
0: And that's very significant. So we've got this resource available, strangulationtraininginstitute.com. With all of these toolkits and the customized brochures, there's no reason that every single one of us can't access that and either take them to our doctor's office or our service clubs or whatever. Uh, You know, what I'd love to do is to um, go to a rotary meeting or something, you know, and pass out some of those brochures, you know, Um, because I think most men are on board with helping to, to prevent domestic violence. And I think that we oftentimes do not necessarily, you know, think about handing out this kind of information. My pet peeve, Gail, is the legal system, guardians ad litem, lawyers. Are you doing anything to specifically try and educate those folks?
1: Uh, We do a lot of work trying to educate prosecutors. We do some work with civil attorneys. We definitely reach out to the judges as well. But I agree with you, Um, it starts uh, wherever our circle of influence could be, and if you're part of a community that you can go out to your uh, service clubs, I would definitely educate because each one of those individuals probably has a friend or relative that may be impacted by domestic violence. Or they may know a civil attorney that might be working in a certain field that may not know about this. So we, we have opportunities all around us if, if we have a chance to educate someone.
0: Well, and for such a significant topic. I mean, I'm so glad that you've shared with us your information about strangulation because to tell you the truth, I mean, I knew it happened in domestic violence situations, but I assumed that if it happened to someone, there would be marks, the police would be right on top of it. The, you know, it it's much more insidious than I ever imagined. Um, and I, I, we, we talked kind of a worst case scenario with the police coming and there's no sign of, uh, you know, marks on the throat or whatever. And the woman gets hauled to jail, uh, as the perpetrator or the aggressor, but what's a best case scenario?
1: Well, the best case scenario is that you have a community that has just adopted the uh, strangulation protocol countywide, and every professional in your community is aware of it. You have brochures everywhere, and they are so trained that even without you saying, they can I I see that you might have some tiny little red spots around your face, or it appears that you may be struggling with swallowing. You know, is it possible that somebody may have applied pressure to your neck and you may not remember? Uh is it and then you're essentially being um not a, I wouldn't say aggressive, but you're taking the initiative to make sure it's not missed. That it's one of those top things that you don't want to miss because you don't want anybody to ultimately end up having a, another assault and hopefully not dying because like I said before, and which I think bears repeating if anyone is listening to this, if you've been strangled one time, you're 750% more likely to be killed. It's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. And it's probably going to happen again and it's like playing Russian roulette and this is very serious and it can be very lethal and strangulation can occur very quickly and even if you survive each and every time you're being strangled you are suffering some form of an anoxic brain injury that will change you for life
0: yeah scary very scary stuff um, I'm appalled at the high incidence, or at least the high likelihood, of the numbers of women who are experiencing this. And I, as I said, I'm going to get some of those brochures. I really am. And I hope every one of our listeners will come. I, I hope you're deluged with requests for these customized Me brochures. Me too.
1: That's a problem I want to have. That's, that's what I call it, <laughs> a good problem to have. Now, if, uh, well, we just have a couple minutes left,
0: but if I'm a woman who is experiencing strangulation, who should I call? What should I do? Where do I go? Do I go to my doctor? Do I go to the police? Do I, well, I'm kind of scared of going to the police. I don't know. You know, where do I go if I'm experiencing this?
1: Well, I would say because it is a crime and it's lethal, you should be calling nine one one. I know not all victims want to report and call the police, but that would be my first step is call nine one one because this is a lethal and dangerous situation. And uh, That needs to be addressed, and we need to address your safety. If the police respond, then we'll be able to get advocates. We'll also be able to transport you to the hospital, and hopefully that hospital has also received the training and they'll be able to assess you adequately and carefully and then provide you with the treatment that you need to make sure that you're going to stay alive. And then from there, uh, hopefully we'll have trained prosecutors who will be able to handle this case and advocates to uh, work with you throughout the entire process and navigate you through the process, and then ultimately uh, put you in contact with civil attorneys so they can address any civil needs that you might have with your safety and protection, to protect your children, and to stay in a safe place.
0: Okay, and that's an ideal scenario. A lot of women are not going to be able to avail themselves of all of that help, but it is there. And it's there for a lot of women. And um, so, you know, be, be aware that this occurs. I think that's the best thing that we can hope for, is that people are aware that this, in fact, occurs, and we need to be vigilant, and we need to be aware of it. So give your website again, Gail.
1: It's strangulationtraininginstitute.com. Please visit okay. our website. Please download the information. We're here to help you
0: Okay. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. I, I learned a lot about this important topic, and I hope you did, too. Join us next week. Thank you very much, Gail Strack, for joining us. Thank you, Heather. Bye. With the Lucky Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.